Hello and welcome to episode number 13 of Making Media Now, the filmmaker's collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Azevedo. On this episode, I speak with filmmakers Jonathan Schwartz and Mike Maskell, the creators of an eye-opening documentary film called Code Switching. Code Switching is a mashup of personal stories from three generations of students enrolled in the Boston Area METCO program, a groundbreaking voluntary desegregation initiative. The film explores shifting race relations in the suburban-urban axis, teen self-perception, and the role gender plays in fitting in. Many participants in METCO achieve enviable academic success, while some find navigating between the two highly segregated worlds difficult. Ever since that first bus ride, I started asking myself, why do I have to go so far away in order to get a high-quality education? Like, why? I don't understand. We are a group of minority students going to these white suburban towns, hoping for a better education. When you leave, people would need it when they're armed at 5 o'clock in the morning, ride the rest of the way to bus out to Lexington and you're in school with a bunch of white kids and, and white teachers. You would go from the inner city to an affluent school system. The whole experience gave me one one vital thing, how to deal with other people that were different from you. People have all these stereotypes about us. Like, when they'll start a beat, expect you to rap, but that just wasn't me. There was a point where I was like, it was like having two Fatimas. I feel like a weird disconnect, like I don't fit in in either spots. When I'm out in Weston, I try to make sure that I speak as well as I can because I don't want to be that black. My parents made it very clear there's probably no reason that I can be in Lexington unless I'm in school or I'm making up a test, meet with a teacher of sports. You know, just be careful where you are. Be careful what you do, because you know if something happened, they're coming to get you. Whatever the majority image is, that's what the standard is. Yeah. And so everyone looked pale-skinned, blonde hair. I am not that. When I wear my natural hair out, mm -hmm. I feel like I get less likes yeah. than what I do when, like, if my hair would be straightened. Mm -hmm. I felt very vulnerable mm -hmm. and exposed. My depression was most severe between my eighth grade and 10th grade years. Throughout that period of time, I tried to attempt suicide 12 times. I've seen one black substitute in my school for the four years that I've been going there. We don't have enough resources to help us when we are struggling through school. Also, I think that they're using us just to have that little spark of diversity. I'm one of 6% in my school. I felt like the only time I existed in the classroom was in February, and when we decided to learn about the Civil War and slavery. You mean to tell me that's the only time I exist? It was like we lived two lifestyles. So you lived two different, different You know, lifestyles. you lived your home, hood, black, whatever you want to call it, you know, you know your city life. Mm -hmm. and dealing with you and me, mm -hmm. and everybody like us, and then you get on a bus, drive 20 miles, and bang, it's a whole nother world. It's taken me so long to realize that I'm just one person. I don't know like all the street lang language, and I, or I don't like portray myself as like the stereotypical black girl mm -hmm. in school or at home. They don't like me because I'm not like them. It's just like, hey, throw the deuces up. Employing documentary footage, theatrical sets, animation, and original music, Code Switching examines how the growing influence of social media may affect future generations of code switchers and asks whether they are prepared for what lies ahead. 
Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum. From providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs, Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, we encourage you to please subscribe and leave a review. And now on to my conversation with Jonathan Schwartz and Mike Maskall. Welcome, Jonathan Schwartz, the director of Code Switching, and Mike Maskall, the producer. And uh, it's great to have you here on Making Media Now. How are you gentlemen doing today? Good. Great to be had. We are recording this on Super Bowl Sunday, and Mike is in his uh, full uh, football attire. Uh, is that a number 12 I'm seeing? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> None other. <laughs> okay. Well, by the time this podcast finds its way into the world, we will know the outcome of the Super Bowl between the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Kansas City Chiefs. I think I know who Mike is rooting for. Absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm rooting for uh, Tom Brady also. How could you not? So, gentlemen, tell me about how code switching came came to be. And before we get into that story, I would love it if one of you could define for me and for our listeners what code switching means. Code switching refers to, I would say, in a way, almost the forced necessity to swap personas, switch language as one shuttles back from one existence to the other, you know, and we all code switch to a certain extent. But in the case of uh, this film about students who are bust between uh, their inner city neighborhoods and uh, white suburban schools, it becomes uh, particularly and painfully important. And Mike, having having been a participant in the METCO program yourself, can you attribute to the uh, the the factual existence of code switching. Sure, you know the act the act itself. It's it's a matter of switching your language, your behavior, adaptation to the culture, and the environment that you're in. Um, you know, it's not just a class a class adjustment or a race adjustment. It's an environment adjustment. So, uh, having a probably a better sense of peace in the suburban community versus more of a tensed everyday uh, atmosphere in the city you know, requires you to adapt uh, on the spot. It's a matter of survival. In the case of this film, you know, there are people that go through multiple instances of code switching adaptation. So, for instance, one of our characters, Fatima, her family's from Sierra Leone. She went from a African diaspora environment to an African-American, predominantly African-American environment on the school bus to uh, a more white suburban environment, right? So code switching is not necessarily about a duality. It can happen multiple times. And, you know, the point of the film is that code switching can bring about wonderful things, uh, you know, intellectual and and social mobility and empathy and cross-cultural understanding, you know, or it can be um, soul-crushing, and, uh, you know, force one to try to retain, as, as Mike says, you know, the, the authentic self in the face of naivete and systemic racism 
and outright bigotry and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. And I just want to add that, you know, in this film, we didn't just look at code switching for the duration that our two generations of, or three generations of students uh, spent going back and forth between uh, urban and suburban, but some of our characters are still benefiting and still struggling with code switching years later. Mike, in your experience, was code switching something you were conscious of, or is it a process of adaptation and assimilation that it just naturally kicks into gear once you're moving between these worlds? No, it, it, it evolves over time. So I started out in the uh, program as an eight-year-old in the third grade going to school in Lexington. And I remember the early years, it wasn't about code switching. It was just about whether or not you had a sense of belonging, whether you felt part of a community that you were uh, coming into, as well as, you know, starting to feel a little bit of a disconnect from the community that you're leaving on a daily basis. So I didn't get a chance to spend much time, you know, with closer friends that I grew up with in Boston, unless I saw them on the weekends, because there just wasn't time to do so. But uh, as time went on, in the at least in the suburban community, it kind of evolved from a sense of whether or not uh, I belonged uh, to whether or not uh, I was able to get involved enough to feel at least a, 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 enough part of the community so that they would want to have deeper conversations with me, <laughs> you know, beyond you know, the recognition of my skin color being a little bit different from theirs and the fact that I, you know, just didn't uh, quite understand all the nuances that were considered normal in their environment. You know, I was sure. bringing something different to the table that aroused a lot of curiosity. In, in which Boston neighborhood were you uh, being uh, bussed in from? Well, I mean, I lived in four different parts of Boston growing up, so I was bussed from all of them, from the South End, from Roxbury, from Dorchester. You know, I spent eight years, eight years in the program, so I kind of moved around Boston, so kind of represent all of Boston. Sure. And what was your experience at the end of those eight years? What was your experience of, of making that transition like? Quite a bit of lessons learned. Um, you know, one, one of the things, one of the biggest takeaways leaving that program is I kind of learned the importance of uh, networking and adaptation, how, how to kind of adapt in different environments for the betterment. You know, I, I obviously know aspect of code switching can, can have tremendous impact on, on your psyche one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, leaving the program and as I transitioned into college and later on into adult life, you know, my biggest takeaway was to use it as a strength and not, not, not a hindrance. You know, use it to, to build bridges. Jonathan, how did how did this story come on onto your radar, and what was it about it that was compelling for you? I was raised by a single mom who was very involved in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. I kind of paid for that in that in my immediate neighborhood, I was uh, ostracized and um, um, got into a lot of uh, schoolyard and and backyard fights because of my family's um, progressive views. And uh, I, you know, have these faint memories as a young kid of going to freedom school, uh, my mother being involved in Project Exodus, 
which was the uh, one of the precursors of Metco. You know, I kind of had an instinctual interest in the topic, and within the film community in Boston, and within the television community uh, of Boston, there are quite a number of uh, folks who had um, uh, been through the Metco program, cameramen, producers. Mm-hmm. You know, and I heard their stories. What is the consensus, if there is a consensus, among the architects of the Medco program um, in terms of, you know, how how frequently is the efficacy of the program uh, evaluated? And what's the thinking today uh, versus, say, when Mike was part of the program? Do you you have a sense of that? I do. You know, there there is... um... There is new leadership within the uh, MECO program. They are promoting lots of dialogue. They are uh, opening up uh, the program in a lot of ways, promoting and ready to hear discussion on how to improve the program in many ways and how to make it as robust and sustainable. You know, and and they were um, very helpful to us as we initiated the film. Uh, very collaborative, very open, made a lot of resources available. And um, we really love the program. If you support something, you want to have honest and open dialogue about how to uh, improve it and be as sensitive as possible to the participants. How are the, um, the, the number of participants on a yearly basis determined? Is there, is there a fixed allotment? How does that work? There is a fixed allotment, and it really hasn't changed. It's kind of plateaued from, believe it or not, going back to 1977. So oh, wow. the the current enrollment of about 3,200 students amongst all towns has, has been that same number, that hard number since 1977. Okay. So although there is a very strong waiting list of about 10,000 plus annually, the program itself has not expanded. Um, so that makes it a little challenging on a lot of fronts. You know, there is, you know, level funding that was always an issue for a number of years. There was always issues about whether or not other towns wanted to participate in the program, towns like your Winchesters and so forth that uh, were offered that opportunity early in its history, but uh, haven't uh, thrown in their hat yet. Have the number of participating towns increased or is that number stayed fixed also? That number has increased. You have uh, a few more Western towns like Western Massachusetts towns like Springfield, who are now part of the program okay. where they weren't initially. Um, but that number has, you know, if it's over 40, I'd, I'd be surprised. I think it's the, the number might still be uh, trending un, under 40, 37. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So it hasn't, okay. it hasn't grown much significantly. Michael, you have Meco students in your town. Michael Azevedo, me? Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm in West Newberry right now. Uh, were you oh. speaking of Melrose? Yes. Yes, Metco. And in fact, when I was going to school in Melrose, there were Metco students. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I have very uh, prom, uh, vivid memories of of um, making um, connections with Metco students while I, when I was in high school. And and speaking of the students, how did you guys go or go about deciding um, how to cast? so to speak, uh, how to choose the participants that were going to be in your film, and what were you thinking about in terms of uh, the perspectives that you wanted represented by, by these individuals? Well, I, actually, two ways. So 
about half the participants were friends of Michael and had been in uh, his film, which was the prequel to ours. And the other half were found through um, extensive and vigorous research uh, on the part of um, several skilled uh, associate producers that we had who were looking for the viewpoint, in particular, the younger generation and particular, particularly young women and girls, mm -hmm. deliberately. Yeah, sure. It did seem, when I was watching the film, it seemed like the overlay of simply being an adolescent growing up in the age of ubiquitous social media, combined with the necessary code switching of, you know, from moving from one environment to another, just seemed to add, you know, a um, extra stressors upon certain individuals. And uh, I, in particular, I was thinking of the way the women in the film were impacted. Um, any, any, any thoughts on that observation? You know, I mean, it, it, it's a bit of a cliche, but, uh, you know, we found, and, you know, this is not scientific, but, you know, that teenagers, girls had a tougher time in middle school and high school. Mm -hmm. They weren't around so much on the weekends. Uh, they were dealing with more of a particular kind of social pressure, fitting in with the, uh, the beautiful crowd, the beautiful people, and facing more alienate, alienation and suspicion and jealousy back in their original neighborhoods and in the middle school and high school environments of suburbia. Whereas um, some of the uh, younger black and brown boys in, in primary school may have had more adjustments and, you know, as, as Michael once mentioned to me, you know, more of the, the gut punches in the uh, schoolyard, you know, having to uh, face people's fears and, you know, get into a ruckus. But yeah, I mean, there have been many articulate young women who have spoken out, you know, at their high school graduations and things. And I think um, there's been a lot of uh, trauma associated with uh, the teen years for, sure. you know, and, and, you know, you take someone like Michael, you know, who's uh, uh, an accomplished jock and, you know, there's that, you know, he had the benefit of a bit of uh, kind of being indispensable mm -hmm. as an athlete. Whereas um, the girls, even if they were great athletes, didn't have quite the same cachet. Right. Yeah, that factor is brought out in the film, too, where there's reference made to, well, if you're, you know, if you're, if you're a Metco kid and you're really giving the uh, basketball team or the football team uh, an extra boost, then, you know, you're welcome with open arms. That might be a little bit different for the, for the non-student athlete. You're, uh, and, you know, for, for the record, I like to be referred to as a student athlete, but, uh, you know, <laughs> there. What, was but, your, uh, what was your game? I'm going to say some football. I was... I was the captain of the high school basketball team, so oh, okay, I played, I played varsity as a sophomore, junior, wow. senior. Very powerhouse Lexington High yeah, basketball. Yeah, but Mike, Michael is currently a multi-sport sport coach. 
Absolutely. That's right. Now I coach my son in baseball, basketball, football. Oh, that's the best. Anything they throw in front of them. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the thing in, in, in my first film, um, Katani Eaton, who's the mother of one of the students that was interviewed in this in the code switching film. Sure. And, and, and Mike, just for the benefit of our of our listeners, uh, tell us what the name of your first film was. So the first film, the original film was called On the Line Where Sacrifice Begins. Okay. You know, it takes more of a historical approach of the entire program and a very, you know, 30,000 foot view of the entire experience uh, across all spectrums. But I did interview the suburban community, too, to get their feedback and their take. Okay. Um, and one of the biggest takeaways for them was the, the, the fact that they didn't take uh, full advantage of the pro those two original reasons for the program uh, when it first launched. One was for inner students to get a inner city students to get a better education. And then the second piece uh, was, was about integration and more so to do more for the suburban community to give them some exposure that they could implement later on in life. So, there's a lot of talk about whether that suburban community actually took advantage of that opportunity. And in, in hindsight, you hear a lot of folks from the suburban community talk about how they'd like to have a do-over because they didn't really take full advantage of it. They didn't come into the city. They didn't openly engage enough to learn as much as they could about other cultures aside from what was in their own little circle. But the one thing about sports, and Katani brings it up in the, in the first film, is she mentions to the younger black girls who were in the program, she says, are you involved in the community? Mm -hmm. And when she asked that question, she was really addressing both worlds. You know, are you involved back home? And are you involved out here? Because if you, if you don't, if you don't play a sport, then you must get involved in some other activity, whether it's, you know, government, student, student uh, organizations, whatever it is, you're not going to really feel a part of that community unless you openly push yourself and expose yourself into the into the community itself. So that's a big miss. And that, that's something that, uh, you know, sports aside, um, that's a big delta between those that probably don't get as much out of the program and, and is always challenged with the code switch versus those that do. That, sure. that, that, that total sense of belonging. Theater, music, civics. Yeah. From a production standpoint, uh, the, the, the film makes really good use, I thought, of um, animation uh, and, and music. Um, so from a, from a viewpoint of filmmakers, talk to me about what the, um, the rationale and the objective of, of using those elements were. There was a lot of young people, generation X, Y, Z, whatnot, involved in the making of the film. And, you know, they brought in modalities that were authentic, original, and appealing to them. You know, uh, also, you know, there were aspects of this piece, you know, that were like a, a Greek tragedy in that, you know, they were sort of more like a play, right? You know, the way, you know, um, a lot of the interviews were conducted on, on bus seats uh, with bus windows, you know, as props. And, and you know, the color yellow was, was dominant, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, it, it, it was um, a lot of this film was an extended uh, dinner party where there was um, lots of people involved, you know, chipping in creativity, time, insight, lots of people who were involved in this program. Our terrific narrator, actor Naheem Garcia, 
you know, who had um, daughters in the program and he was able to comment on the narration, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, it had that inclusive, sprawling feel that made us as filmmakers constantly adjust our our perceptions, you know, and, and conceit. And, you know, you, you had the character of a ex-convict who was one of the uh, main characters in the film who had never offended previously and he never offended after his incarceration. And he was all about code switching. He felt that social mobility was useful in prison. It was useful in his sales and marketing career afterwards. And um, it was useful in understanding uh, the realities facing uh, his daughters. You know, so we tried not to shy away from um, contradictions and, uh, and that sort of stance too, you know, fuels the creative process. But, you know, also, also truthfully, you know, my son is a fanatic uh, manga and anime okay. devotee to this day, you know, and of course, what, what father doesn't want to, you know, some recognition at the home front. Yeah. Well, another thing that I thought that the animation did a really good job of doing is uh, as your participants were kind of reminiscing, telling telling of their experience, uh, the animation almost served as a it was a bit of a dreamscape. Like this is a depiction of their of their recollection. And I I thought that was a very um, creative way of entering into that space. Right, because not because our characters did not have unlimited time for us to you know uh, go back and follow them during you know Yellow Brick Road. Right. So you know to do it in a in a dramatic fashion, you know, and some of the you know the animators worked in teams. Some of them grew up in the inner city. Some of them were born in India and China and the Philippines. And it was so interesting the way they helped each other, even in the shaping of the animation, uh, there there was so much um, uh, uh, cross-cultural fusion, you know? It was a lot of of fun to um, serve as art director in that process. Sure. And the the film, if I if I understand correctly, is kind of just one element of what almost feels like a um, an online or digital initiative. There's a very impressive website. There are press materials. Um, what is your plan for using the film as you know as a piece of regional history, but also as an educational opportunity? I'll let Michael speak to that, but. Sure. Uh, As the director, I've I've been really encouraged and shocked and delighted how much discussion this has provoked among young people, policymakers, and um, it's having a terrific run uh, with New Day Films, our educational distributor, and through World and NETA Mm -hmm. on PBS. So we're finding it's having a lot of uh, national valence, you know, and it's not just about code switching among African-Americans attending suburban schools, but I think it has wider implications about people feeling at home or not at home 
in their educational environment. And excellent point. And 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 post pandemic, when students have not been sometimes able or forced to attend school and coming into their own reckoning whether they ever really want to go back, we're finding that this film and the discussion it provokes and um and you know we're beginning to develop bona fide educational and curriculum packages to support the the utility of this film but i you know i just been shocked at the uh emotional and uh policy driven discussion it provokes gratified yeah i'd, I'd add to that too jonathan so the I mean, this medium, the, the film itself, kind of captures voices in very complex social spaces that you would normally not be able to, uh, you know, break through. You know, I, I think with the film and the different mediums that we've chosen so far, you know, there's there's the generational perspective, but there's also a huge teaching tool in this where, you know, there are ways for us to use it to improve diverse learning and participation. So. You know, we have a broad audience across the country who who are very attracted to, you know, the storyline, but they also come back at us with, you know, experiences and occurrences that occurred in their own uh, communities across the country where they can assimilate to code switching, but they also have their own history on trying to evolve their educational programs. So I look at it like this. We're bringing the matter of future Black lives out of the classroom into the forefront you know, we're, obviously we're examining the impact and systemic complexities around school integration for education, but also health, awareness, social mobility. I mean, I feel, I feel bad for this generation. I mean, the pressure comes from so many different angles. So you know, true. just when you think you've got one under control, bam, there's some post on social that's just set you back, <laughs> you know, in your right. circle. Right. And now you got to circumvent that. That is just... That's amazing that they have to jump through those hoops just to, you know, keep a positive front. But yeah, that's I mean, it, one of the potentially great things about a film such as yours is it, you know, it, it might give more light to the fact that um, a recognition, you know, among adolescents that they're not the only one dealing with certain, certain of these issues and, you know, maybe the optimist in me says that maybe the uh, thinking is that there's strength in numbers and that, hey, if we're all going through this um, scenario that can be very intimidating and awkward, well, why don't we just kind of collectively decide we're not going to we're going to do our best to not make it that way. That's right. Very good point, Michael. Well, gentlemen, um, let our listeners know where they can go to find out more about the film um, and and more about all the associated materials. The website is Code Switching Movie. Code Switching Movie, okay. All one word, CodeSwitchingMovie.com. Great. And I, and I assume educators can avail themselves of that also. Absolutely. And then, you know, uh, they can be in touch directly with... Uh, um, Lev, Lift Every Voice. Is that uh, lev.org? Yeah, so uh, Lev, levmediagroup.co uh, is another source. Uh, the film itself for educators can be accessed through New Day Films, so newday.com, uh, where they can see films, uh, two different films on the subject, and they're certainly welcome to use it as a teaching tool in their classroom by um, just downloading the streaming options. 
so that they could broadcast to their students, even though they're in virtual, they could still provide that extended access. And, you know, the, the, the New Day platform, um, all the films and all the directors who are part of that community are very close to their films where in the event, you, you need to bring in a director to have conversation with the students. That's, that's kind of part of the uh, ongoing curriculum that's uh, been extended in that platform. And one other platform that's coming out should launch on, uh, on the 9th of this month is uh, Canopy Films, Canopy, Canopy streaming platform, canopy.com. That's, that's great to know. That's for any student that has a, who has a public library card anywhere. Excellent. Yeah, yep. that's great. And we'll make sure that um, all of those um, links and places for additional information are listed in the program notes for this particular. Oh, thank you. Yes. And, and upcoming broadcasts on the World Channel and on PBS stations through uh, NETA. Um, and uh, we work we work with uh Ross Box Media out of Atlanta, who does our station relations, and uh, their staff would be uh, more than happy to help um, with uh, uh, accessing uh, broadcast times and cities and places. Sure. Excellent. Well, gentlemen, thank you both for your time, and thank you for this film. Uh, I enjoyed speaking with you, and um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care.